0: Nehemiah chapter 6 this morning, um, we finished this pause, this parenthetic moment, this uh, dramatic interlude last week with Nehemiah. And uh, this week we kind of get back into the fullness of the story and what's going on. And so uh, whereas Nehemiah was demonstrating uh, last couple weeks in chapter 5, just the terrible leadership of the Uh, nobles and officials in Jerusalem, and then how he contrasted by caring for the weak, the vulnerable, uh, the dispossessed, the impoverished. Uh, It it was a demonstration of God's faithfulness. It helps to set the stage, helps to um, flavor what's going on. We come back now to the enemies that are outside of the city, and they, in fact, influence some inside the city. So we get back to, uh, and I use this sarcastically, our dear friend Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem. These guys who hate what Nehemiah is doing, who hate him because he's doing God's work, and who are on mission, frankly, to destroy it. What we're going to see this morning is that they use three different tactics. And the tactics are no different than what the enemy uses today. Uh, they're no different than what, they use, what the enemy used against Christ uh, close to 2,000 years ago, even on Palm Sunday and Passion Week. And they're no different than what Satan does in your life And in my life today. And so I think in that sense, it holds uh, unbelievable levels of application for us today. And it was really almost 2,000 years ago today that Christ rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Uh, When I was growing up in church, uh, almost every Palm Sunday, um, in Sunday school, children's church, somebody would bring palm fronds. And uh, we'd always leave the church with palm fronds. And Easter Sunday, we left with little plastic eggs. but this was the day, and Christ is riding in to Jerusalem on a donkey, and uh, he is being hailed as king by the same people who will scream for him to be crucified by, uh, by Friday. And as he rides in, he is fulfilling uh, so many promises, promises that went back to Abraham, where God tells Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation that's going to bless all the nations, This is really finding its uh, essence of fulfillment as Jesus is riding in. Promises to David uh, that there was going to be a king from his line. Jesus is riding in, not on a war horse, uh, but in a way that a king would, in a peaceful kind of setting. It's a fulfillment of all these promises. It's kind of the culminating fulfillment of God promising that he was going to make a people where he literally puts their law on their hearts rather than on stone tablets and what he's saying is i'm going to save and redeem you and reveal this in such a way that you have the abiding presence of the spirit convicting you of sin and telling you of righteousness and this is the moment and as jesus rides through the eastern gate he is riding through walls that nehemiah built which was all of its own fulfillment of amazing promises um God telling his people, I will send you into captivity in Babylon, but I'm going to bring you back. Uh, And he has. And now Nehemiah is rebuilding the city, and Nehemiah doesn't even know that 500 years later the Messiah is going to ride into the city that essentially he is raising from the rubble. But Jesus doesn't get through this Passion Week, obviously, without unbelievable amounts of opposition. Uh, He doesn't get to the cross on Friday Because everybody's a fan, Uh, and to Resurrection Sunday without having to stare down the enemy himself who only wants to thwart God's mission. That's Satan's chief plan. Let me deny God his glory and somehow thwart his mission. Well, in Nehemiah, it was the same kind of thing. Let me deny God his glory and thwart his mission. Let me do anything and everything I can. To stop these people from doing what I've called them, what God has called them to do. And that's true for you and me today. The Satan would love, love nothing more than to divert us from the mission that God has given to us. To somehow distract us, to, to somehow call us away from what God would have for us. And so my question this morning that, that we want to ultimately provide an answer for, at least in part today, is this. How do we resist the mission-ending tactics of the enemy? How do we push back? How do we defend ourselves? How do we inoculate ourselves? How do we vaccinate ourselves against the mission-ending tactics of the enemy? How do we stay on track? How do we um, keep after what God has laid out for us Satan knows if he can't stop the mission, at least he can distract us from it. And all tied up in the mission of God is the people of God because God in his wisdom and in his grace and his glory has chosen to use very weak and broken people like you and I to accomplish his ends. That's a daunting thing for us because we know how weak and feeble we are. And so for God to say, I'm going to accomplish my glory and I'm going to accomplish my mission, but I'm going to do it through these people. When I was a kid growing up, my dad Whenever we needed to get tools, we always went and we got the best tools. We always went and bought Craftsman, uh, lifetime warranty. Um, when my dad passed away, I actually brought some of his his tools back, and uh, one of the ratchets was broken. It's a Craftsman ratchet. I don't know how old this was. This ratchet is, but I remember using it to change the transmission on a '78 Ford van when I was a kid. It's broke. I took it right to the store and got a new one. Life time warranty. It means something. I know other tool companies have that now. When I was a kid, you buy the best tool. Look look at, listen, God's not using craftsman tool for you this morning. This is like the buck 99, 20% off saver coupon at Harbor Freight, right? Like it might get the job done, but you're like, really? We couldn't have stepped it up a minute. And so here God is using broken clay pots to accomplish his mission. And so Satan's like, okay, Well, then I'm going to go after the clay pots. And I'm going to do anything in my power to stop. So how do we resist that? We resist it when we remember the purpose of God's mission. Why are we really doing what we're doing? When we remember who the rewarder of the mission is, who do we really give an answer to in the things we're doing for Christ? And who is the real protector of the mission? Um, Do I have to safeguard it, or can I trust God to safeguard it? And when we do that, we will resist the enemy's tactics. And then, so I'm talking to people this morning. I know full well God has you on mission, and I know absolutely Satan is doing everything in his power to distract you from it. And some of your mission overlaps with mine, just because we're humanity. But for many of you this morning, it's, it's very specific to you and where you're at in life and the season of life that you're in. And so I want to help us understand from Nehemiah, who does a phenomenal job of resisting the enemy's tactics. How can we resist his tactics? And so if you're in your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 6, we can take it, the first 14 verses in three different sections. We can see three different tactics. It helps every Baptist pastor everywhere because it's three points. There is no poem at the end, but we'll get the three points and we can push forward. And so I'm going to read it in sections as we hit each one rather than reading uh, the totality right at the beginning. The first one is, is what we call tactic distraction. If you're taking notes this morning, this is verses 1 through 4. First tactic, if Satan can get you distracted from the mission, then he's gotten a victory. I mean, he gets, somehow gets you away from it. Uh, um, I used to referee soccer a lot, and um, it was always somewhat comical because when you when you have little children playing soccer, uh, you don't switch sides at halftime because they can't remember. Um, and so sure as the world, the, one of the soccer leagues I was refereeing, at 10 and under, they would start actually doing this. So at halftime, you switch sides. I mean every single game this happened. Every game, one little child would forget which direction they're going. And instead of running towards their own, the, the other goal, they would run with the ball to their own goal, and it was like the easiest goal they ever scored. Because the goalie's standing there like, what are you doing? And kids got their head down. And so when one of my children was playing soccer, uh, the coach's daughter actually would bring a stuffed animal with her and she would hang it in the goal that they were supposed to go after so she could remember which goal to go towards. Listen, if Satan can distract us from going towards the right goal, he can win. And that's what he does first, verses 1 through 4, Nehemiah chapter 6. Now when Sambalot and Tobiah and Gesheb the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, there was no breach left in, the, in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates. Sambalot and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hakaphirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should we the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they said to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. Now, as Sam, as, as Nehemiah is starting to deal with these enemies, the first thing that they really are just trying to get him to do is stop building the wall. Now, there's a couple details in here. I just want to point out that some things that we don't know. Um, we're not completely sure where it says Hakafiram, where that is at. The the Hebrew word literally means little towns. And so we're not totally sure where that is at. There's actually a fair amount of discussion and disagreement about what the plain of Ono is. Um, if it's If I boil it down to the two best sources, it's either about eight miles west of Jerusalem or 27 miles northwest of Jerusalem. We don't know. What we do know is in either of these locations, they would not be primarily under Jewish control and domination. Uh, So it would have been kind of, if you think back to David's day, where the Philistines were, or certainly where the Samaritans now are. In other words, they want Nehemiah to come to supposedly a uh, peace-treating kind of moment, uh, a gathering, uh, you know, but in their territory. And they want to discuss what's going on. That's the lie that they're selling. Nehemiah obviously sees right through it. What's clear is they want Nehemiah to come to where the enemy controls. Their goal, obviously, is to hurt Nehemiah. Uh, The text is pretty clear. They're persistent in their writing to Nehemiah to try to get him to fall in the chap three times. They keep writing him time after time after time, and he keeps turning them down. And this is not our modern day send a text message, make a phone call, write an email. They would have written a letter. They transport to Nehemiah. They get in. They hand deliver it. Nehemiah reads a letter. Uh, he writes some response. It gets tracked back. And so there, there is a building intensity, though, because they keep asking, and they keep asking. Uh, have you ever spent much time with a three-year-old? And and the persistence is intended to wear you down. When we are resisting Satan, our enemy has an unbelievable level of persistence where he will come and come and come and come and come, and come at us. And these are requests. It's interesting that they're not even necessarily commanding him. They're asking him. That The tactics here are to kind of worm their way into Nehemiah's defense system. To somehow convince him that these guys it for his good. Maybe they even want to confess their sin. Maybe they want to get on board with him. Maybe they want to help him. But Nehemiah sees right through it all the time. And he understands what they really want to do. And he says it as much in verse three, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work stop? While they overtly want to hurt him, do physical harm and essentially kill him, the reason they're going after him is because they want God's mission to stop. This takes us back to what I said just a few minutes ago. One of the most difficult things is God in his glory and his sovereignty is working out his mission and his will, but he's doing it through people. And so who does the enemy go after? People. He's going to go after you and me. The letters and the requests themselves are a distraction for what God has Him to be doing. Does Nehemiah really need to be taking time to write letters back and forth with these losers? Why should he? Why should he waste his time dealing with these kinds of people? For sure, there would have been some that are close to Nehemiah who would think that he should go and meet with them? As the book proceeds, there are people, there are some tight relationships here. There's some intermarriage with the priests in the city. There are others in the city that are on the same page with these guys. There are others that they have either bought out, bribed out, uh, or who disagree with Nehemiah, or maybe they want to do their own fights that would have all been around Nehemiah saying, You should go meet with them. You should talk to them. If we were to put it in modern day lingo, they probably would have used all kinds of New Testament passages to try to convince them. Well, didn't Jesus go to Jerusalem? And didn't Jesus, wasn't he willing to just have conversations with people that were the enemies of God? And listen, wasn't Jesus the one who said, if somebody hits you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. If someone steals your coat, give them your cloak also. And so, Nehemiah, you should probably go. Nehemiah, God might be sending revival here. You can only imagine all the ways the people aligned with the enemy will twist scripture to compel you to do these things. Didn't Joseph go into enemy land and look what God did with that? Didn't Abraham come into this land and trust God? Abraham was ready to sacrifice his own son. Nehemiah, are you not willing to just go? I know these guys, out and Dubai. They, you know what? They are genuine guys. You can trust them. There would absolutely have been the constant pressure surrounding Nehemiah to give in to these guys. I just love how Nehemiah seems to shed off their requests like water off a duck's back. Where he's like, I'm not coming down to you. Why should I do that? I'm doing what God wants me to do and God's mission doesn't include messing with you. I don't have time for you. Can you imagine how angering that would be to these kind of people? I'm not wasting my time to answer you. You want to tick somebody like this off, that's the surefire way to do it. To communicate to them that in some way you are not going to give them the time of day. You know, the reality is we all know that distraction is not good, right? Typically it's not. There are places, yes, for for you to have some mental health breaks and uh, do some self-care for some distraction. Absolutely 100%. But this kind of distraction is never good. Distracted driving is just as bad as drunk driving. Studies have shown, uh, we live in a culture that thinks that multitasking is the epitome, man. The fact that you can have like your calendar open, working on this, answering the phone, that multitasking people are super smart and super talented, that they are incredibly capable. And actually studies of about the last decade have shown that multitasking people get less done are less productive and less creative in the jobs they accomplish. We are not actually wired to multitask well. Uh, The fact of the matter is our brain needs time to sit in a problem to be able to soak in it and think about it and develop creative ideas. Uh, Your optimal time working frame is anywhere from about 50 minutes, depending on just your personality type, your ability, or the job you're doing, from about 50 minutes to about an hour in 50 minutes. That's about all you've got. And you should take a mental break. You should work on one problem for a chunk of time and then step away from it. Trying to do anything of any difficulty, of any complexity, multiple things that at the same time you actually are a risk to yourself and others and you're destroying the job. Now our culture wants to deny that. Our culture doesn't want to believe that. And so every electronic device we have uh, dings and gives messages and alerts and is telling us all the time to pay attention. We see it increasingly in this digital world. Good tools can almost feel like enemies to our productivity with their alerts, their notices, the ease of finding a game, a news article, a video, a song, or a book. Some families have had to resort to phone baskets so that people aren't on their phones through the entire meal. All they're trying to do is distract him. They want to get him away from what God would have him to do. Well, what about spiritual diversions? Anything Anything that would divert our resources, and let me be very clear what I mean by this, our time, our energy, our money, or our gifting, anything that would divert those things from the mission God has for us are speed-killing barnacles. Old ships, they used to have to take them and lay them over their side on low tide and scrape all the barnacles off. The barnacle is just this organism that grows on the bottom of the ship and it kills how fast it can go. It's like the travesty that existed in the 70s with the... Um, environmental control measures they put on cars you went from the muscle cars of the 60s to every car that still looked like a muscle car but it was a lead sled and couldn't get out of its own way in the 70s until they figured something else out it's it just kills the speed of it this is what spiritual diversions do they kill the speed They kill the effectiveness. If Satan can't keep us from our destination, he sure enough wants to slow us down from getting to our destination, and he'll use anything to do it. Distractions, spiritual diversions, they work like clickbait. They only work because they're attractive. I don't know, obviously, what might have been attractive about this diversion. I just know that it must have been because Satan, frankly, our enemy is too smart to try something that's obviously disgusting. So I don't know what his diversions was. Maybe, maybe it's the need to respond because as a leader, he's open to the input of others who disagree with him, right? Because good leaders are open to input from those that would disagree with him. So maybe that's the pressure. Well, uh, demonstrate to everybody what a good leader you are, Nehemiah, because you're willing to go sit down and meet with your enemies to hear their side and hear them out. Maybe it's the pressure to be a good leader uh, who is open to correction or rebuke from these guys. Maybe it's, in in other words, Nehemiah, you need to look better in our eyes by taking time out from the mission to go deal with these guys. Maybe it's the desire or the pressure to build relationships that will help trade in the future. He's essentially surrounded by these three guys. They're going to need trade avenues. Once Jerusalem is rebuilt, once the culture is reestablished, they're going to need to trade to the north, the south, and to the east. And that's where all these guys were. If you wanted to get to the ports, you're going to have to go up north. If you want to get down to Egypt, you're going to have to go south. If you want to deal with Babylon, which is the ruling power of the day, you're going to have to go east. And maybe the pressure was like, you know, I'm trying to be think ahead, and if I don't establish relationships with these guys, we could have a city, but we can't do trade, and we're going to die. I don't know. Distractions are attractive. Spiritual diversions will always be attractive to us. Our enemy is too crafty to use things that are unattractive. You know what it looks like? It looks like it's a best friend, not a stranger, but a best friend who comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, don't go down to Jerusalem. They'll kill you there. We need you. We we you. We are so blessed by you. Look at, look at all the good you have done. Look at the people who have been healed. Look at the demon possessed who have been delivered. Look, look at the, the dispossessed who have been brought back into community. Look at the lepers that have been healed. The blind, the deaf, the lame, the man who couldn't walk. The people you've raised from the dead. Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem. You'll die there. That's what it looks like. And Jesus looks at that and says, get thee behind me, Satan. That feels like a good plea. That feels like a loving plea. It was a spiritual diversion. Diversions are always going to be attractive. It looks like advisors affirming to David, King David, you don't need to go down to war. You have fought your whole life. From the time you were a teenage boy, you went and killed Goliath for us. David, you don't need to go down to war. David, stay back in the palace and relax. That's what it looks like before he takes Bathsheba, commits adultery, and then ultimately murder. It looks like a possible good thing See, spiritual diversions are effective because they look like good things to us, but it takes us from the main thing. How do we resist? How can we be protected against? How do we battle this tactic of the enemy? I think it's actually very simple. Cling to the mission. Make mission priority. Now, Nehemiah reads right through the distraction, and he knows what they're after. What the enemy is really after is to get him off mission. Why should I leave this great work? I cannot come down. The work will stop. If I leave it, I'm not leaving. There's two things that work in Nehemiah's favor here. First, he sees the mission of God as great work. And second, he understands the link to God's glory. All along the way, Nehemiah has seen his mission, this mission of rebuilding the city the walls and the gates physically, and the culture spiritually, he's always seen this as God's mission for God's glory, and he just gets to be a part of it. His faithfulness to the mission is because he's faithful and committed to what is going to make God look big. You know, Jesus has this moment in the Passion Week. And so while today is Paul's Sunday, later in the week, Jesus, every day he would travel into Jerusalem and then come back out of the city. Uh, And it's where we have some of our most famous moments of Christ's life, where he goes in the city one day and he sees a fig tree, um, and it's not in bloom, so he curses it. They go in the city, spends a day teaching, comes out of the city. The next day they go back into the city and the tree is dead. These are moments that Jesus has interactions with people, and and so he's going back and forth from staying at Lazarus' house, uh, back in and out of the city. And one day he's in the temple complex and he's teaching. And as he's teaching, they come to Jesus and they say, there's a group of Gentiles that have come to see you and they want to speak to you. And you might remember, I think I explained this last week or the week before, the temple structure had all these gates and courtyards that different people could go into. Uh, you had what was called the Court of the Gentiles and they could go into this place and, and they're kind of in the temple complex, but it was the only place Gentiles could go. And it actually had a warning plaque, archaeologists have found these, that basically says, if you're a Gentile and you go past this gate, we're going to kill you. And so they had the court of Gentiles and they had what was called the court of women. And the court of women was a massive place. It was next to the treasury. That's where Jesus spent a serious amount of his time teaching. All the Jews could gather around there. They could hear him and it was a large open space where he could speak at. That's where they would light all the candelabras. Uh, and, and so this is where lots of the teaching occurred. And then inside that you had the temple. you had the courtyard of the priests. Only priests could go there. And then you were in the temple itself beyond that. And so Jesus is in the courtyard of the women, uh, and so it's only Jews there, and they say, hey, there's this large group of Gentiles out here that would want to hear you. Now remember, remember now, Jesus is fulfilling the covenant with Abraham, I'm going to make you a nation that blesses all nations. Jesus has always been part of his mission to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. But right now, in this week, Passion Week, he's in the temple, and he's fulfilling God's promises to the nation of Israel to offer them salvation. Well, it sounds like a very good thing. These people really want to hear from you. These guys were not enemies. And it's astounding because Jesus says, basically, I don't have time for that. Not right now. This is a very good thing, but it was going to be a distraction from the main thing. That takes some wisdom, doesn't it? This is the way diversions work. It looks like possible good things, but it takes us from the main thing. How do we resist that? We have to cling to the mission. We have to understand that the mission from God is a great work, and that it's all about God's glory. Can I ask you, are you clear on the mission God has put in front of you? Do you actually have mission clarity? Do you know, could, you, could you even, you know, if we were having a conversation this morning, and I, and I was saying, okay, I'm saying you need to, have, you need to cling to the mission, and then if I looked at you and I said, "So what's your mission?" Could you tell me? Do you have total clarity on what it is God has put in front of you? When we steward our resources of time, money and talents, when we make decisions, what am I going to spend on and and by spend I don't just mean pennies or shekels, right? I But what am I going to spend my time on? And Any resource that's a diminishing resource, that is a fixed commodity, you only have so much time. You only have so much money. You only have so much energy. You only have certain gifting. You you have limited resources. How am I going to divvy that up? How am I going to budget that for God's kingdom? A surefire way to waste your resources is to not budget your resources. It's to not think intentionally or to plan accordingly. And so if I were to ask you, what is the mission that God has you on so we are to be stewarding our resources in a way that declares his glory and eternity? We should be living our lives in such a way that demonstrates that this is temporary. This world is not our home. We are passing through. We are strangers here. We do things like Ask forgiveness, repent of sin, grant forgiveness to others because we want to put his glory on display. We parent our children not for how it makes us look or even what we are convinced is right for them, but in a way that is on mission to show the love character. What is your mission? You could boil it down even to what the Westminster Confession of Faith would say. Here's your mission. Here's your ultimate mission that everything else in life falls under, and here's the umbrella it is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's a, but that's a huge umbrella. How will I best glorify God? And so then you're going to actually have to think about specific areas of your life. You would have to think about, well, what's my mission? Uh, and you might think relational status, relationship status. What's my mission as a single? What's my mission as a married person? What's my mission as a friend? What's my mission as a child? What's my, how, in other words, how do I glorify God and enjoy him and how I parent? Been having conversations with my brothers. Um, there's four of us, and we're most of us are at different parenting stages, right? Now, my oldest brother, he his kids span uh, from 15 to two. God bless him. <laughs> and they're wonderful children. Um, my younger brothers, they they've got little ones, and so I'm the only one. All of mine are teenagers, i.e. Uh, teen going on adult—that's like, just what they are. So it's a different phase, and so we're in different seasons. How, how do I parent them on mission? So if the glory of God and the joy of Him forever is my ultimate mission, my umbrella, how does that play out in parenting? Do you know what my job is as a parent? And here's your job as a parent. Here's your mission. You ready for it? Here it is. I'm gonna—I'm just gonna zoom in on this one. Not everybody here is a parent, um, and so that feels unfair. But but I'll just give you this one as an example. Here it is. How can I best Show them Jesus. Boom. How do I put Jesus in front of them? And how I discipline them, how I instruct them, how I raise them, how I care for them, how I call them to live their lives. I'm going to send them all out of my home. Because that's why God God didn't give them to me for me to keep them. He gave them to me to send them. So I'll give you an example. Now they're all teenagers, and so I'm having these competing thoughts in my brain. Time is ticking, time is ticking, time is ticking, right? They're learning to drive. They're doing ACTs. They're going to go to college. I know time with them is running short, and it's breaking my heart. So every ounce of my being wants to pull them closer to me. I don't want you to go out and do these things. You don't need a job. I'll pay for you. Don't worry about it. Just be home. Family meals are important to us. I mean, I, if there's 365 days, if our family was home 365 days a year, I guarantee you we eat we eat dinner as a family, 355 of those. Like, we, it's a priority to us. But now they're in an age, and if I want to hold Jesus in front of them, and I want to help them become who Jesus had them to be, guess what? I have to start letting it go a little bit. Because they're never going to learn how to be the men and the women that God has called them to be if I don't shift what I'm doing under the umbrella of God's glory because it's actually more important now that they begin to discern and to think on their own and to make decisions and have to steward their own resources because now they have their own resources. It gets complex and it gets serious, but I'll tell you this, if you don't develop mission clarity, you won't have a mission to cling to. It's not my job in my parenting to let them experience every thing they want to do. It's not my job. It's not my job to parent them for you. I actually, this might offend you. I have to actually live like, I really don't care what you think of my parenting. Beyond the fact, as a brother and sister in Christ, I need you to come to me and help me discern, but not judge, like whatever. When I was a single, I had to discern, how am I, what's my mission? What's my mission? I live life differently now as a 48-year-old married man with three kids than I did as a 25-year-old single. I was never home. I worked all day. I went on church visitation. I taught Sunday school classes. I preached at rescue mission because those are the gifts and talents God's given me. So I was on mission all the time. It was very clear to me this was a season of my life, and so I was going to pour it into whatever mission God had for me. You'll never have a mission to cling to if you don't have mission clarity, and this is why I think many Christians are easily diverted, because we don't want to take the time to think about it, let alone pray about it or read the Bible about it. If Satan can't stop you from the mission, he sure enough wants to divert you from the mission. Cling to the mission because you see the work is good work. That's how Nehemiah saw it. He said, this is a great work God has me for. I'm not going to stop doing the great work God has given to me. Don't let your time, your money, and your talents be consumed with distractions that take away from mission. God's glory is the purpose. That's just one. That's one. He's got other tactics. He's got other tactics. We've got to keep moving. I want to do a whole sermon on how to develop mission, but that may be, may be down the road. Right? Because we all know I'm a priest of Nehemiah and like three weeks will be done anyway. So <laughs> that's sarcasm central. But here's tactic number two. Tactic number two, verses five through nine, accusations, accusations. And I'm gonna tread lightly here um, because some of you are stinging because accusations is where it really ramps up pain. It hurts. But this is what he says in verse five. In the same way, Sambalot for the fifth time sent his servant to me. The first four letters don't work. I'm gonna send a fifth one. The persistence of the enemy is just astounding. For the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, quote, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it. I mean, these feel like junior hires on Snapchat. This is, like, ridiculous. We sent this, and Geshem agrees, too. And Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports you wish to become their king, and you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come, and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you have, as you say, have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking, their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. This next tactic of false accusations, it's really a cry, um, and it's kind of a subset of diversion, but, but stop doing your work and start defending yourself. This, the strategy is pretty clear. The story is obvious, right? They, they are following along with the same track always. We use it in a negative sense to say this, cut the head off the snake. Um, Christ uses it in a positive sense. They strike the shepherd and the sheep are scattered. They want to get all the people to stop building the walls and to stop hanging the gates. And, uh, and, and they're relentless in the persistence of it. And they know that if I can just get Nehemiah, it'll stop. They recognize if you can kill the leader, you'll kill the work. The same tactic was used a few decades earlier with Ezra when Ezra was there building they sent their letters to Babylon saying Ezra and Zerubbabel these guys are doing this so that they can rebel against you and so the king sent back and said stop it well they have already threatened this even to Nehemiah at the end of chapter two that's what you're going to do Nehemiah's like no the king actually said we could rebuild And so Nehemiah continues to ignore these kind of uh, accusations for them, but they think maybe this will work again. It's different from a distraction in a few key ways, and it's why I've categorized it differently. First of all, first, you might notice as we were reading through it, it was called an open letter. That means it's public. That means that these first four letters, when they were sent in, they were hand-delivered to Nehemiah, and certainly a small group of people would have been aware. A public letter, an open letter, is different. They would have come and found Nehemiah in a wide-open public space, maybe while he's on top of the wall uh, overseeing, maybe while he's with the guys gathering the lumber together to build the gates uh, and set the doors, and they would have said, blow the horn, here's a letter from Sambalat. And so everybody hears this one. It's intended to spit venom into the community by accusing the leader of sin. It's intended to sow doubt in everyone's minds. It's intended to erode the confidence of those he has to work with. It acts like they have some secret knowledge about him and his friends that the supporters don't know about. Yeah, well, we actually know this about Nehemiah. It erodes the confidence in any of the prophets of God that are speaking on God's behalf, supporting Nehemiah. They're trying to ruin Nehemiah's good name, his integrity, his ability to lead with trust and confidence. It's no different than the tool that the enemy used against Jesus with his lies. Against the apostles throughout the book of Acts, against Paul by the Corinthians, what's the goal? Well, Nehemiah nails it again in verse 9. Their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. It's to stop the mission. It's to sow seeds of fear and doubt. It's to make them afraid to do the work that God has called them to do. And it it works because it takes courage to be on mission for God. It takes courage because when you and I are on mission for God, we are countercultural. We do things that don't make sense to the world around us. And every one of us in this room is sensitive to what people think about us. Character assassinations are so effective, in part because God makes our name and our reputation a big deal. Integrity and character are even more important than competence in a leader. All along the way, we've seen that with Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah had obviously led a group of people because as the cupbearer, he would have been in charge of all the food preparation, all the wine preparation, everything in that he would have had to put his eye on. He'd have had to put his finger in the pie and taste it. He'd have had to sip the bottle of wine when it's open to make sure there's no poison there. Um, so he had a group of people. But Nehemiah had never been the governor of a city had never been the organizer of a massive building project. He wasn't a a mason by trade to be able to build walls or a carpenter by trade to know how to build doors and set doors. And and so the, the, the way Nehemiah is having to work is to depend on God's strength, not his own strength. And there always would have been this little bit of potential insecurity and fear. I don't really know what I'm doing. And so if we can get this guy to stop it, then the whole work Well, stop. Well, why does God choose Nehemiah with his lack of competence, seemingly competence or expertise in building because Nehemiah had character? And accusations are intended to destroy character. We live in a culture and a time that you can make an accusation against somebody and just completely ruin their name and it'd be completely groundless, totally groundless. We can insinuate things about people. You want to you see the experts, just watch how the politicians relate to each other. And they let things be said and they do things and it's, it's character assassination. And it almost, honestly, it almost feels like sometimes Christianity has taken its cues from the world about how they deal with one another. And they gossip and they slander Why is it so effective? Well, it's it's so effective first simply because God makes a big deal out of our character. But it's also so effective because gossip and slander taste really, really good. They're like choice morsels that go down to our bellies. It's effective because it's easier to doubt than to believe. It's effective because no one can ever fully answer every accusation. You know, I find it fascinating how quick we are to march out old parable sayings that we think address difficult situations, and they don't. So, so for example... When people march out this kind of saying, well, there's two sides to every so- story and the truth is somewhere in the middle. You sound so wise. <laughs> Tell that to Paul with the Corinthians. It's not true, is it? There was truth and there was a lie. What do you do? How about Satan in the garden with Eve? Eve. Was there two sides to that story? There's not. Can I just tell you sometimes, sometimes, there's truth and there's lie. There's black and there's white. And there's no gray in the middle of it. No, instead, you end up with all these passages of scripture that tell you that a whisperer separates friends. It's funny because in that proverb from the Bible, he's not telling you to judge necessarily whether you think it's true or not. He's just telling you the one that comes to you and whispers to you is trying to destroy your friendships and relationships with other people. So don't listen. I'm not talking about sticking your head in the sand because there are right ways to judge character. If there weren't right ways to judge character and look at integrity, then the qualifications for elders and deacons don't even make sense in Timothy and Titus. What I'm telling you is false accusations matter and they destroy and it is a supreme tactic of the enemy. I mean, there are certain things in our culture that are just death, right? Just death. Like uh, when I was a kid in school, Any teacher kids didn't like, there were stories about. Any teacher. My seventh grade algebra teacher, Mr. Anderson. There's all kinds of rumors about Mr. Anderson. Now, uh, that he's an alcoholic, that he drinks during class. I mean, some pretty heavy accusations against the teacher, right? I had Mr. Anderson. Mr. Anderson went to his closet one day in class had the closet door kind of half open. I don't know what Mr. Anderson was drinking in there, but I'm here to tell you when he came out, his breath smelled like alcohol. Now, that's all I have to do, and suddenly all of your minds are thinking, I bet Mr. Anderson was an alcoholic. Now, what I conveniently left out is that his breath smelled minty fresh alcoholic. I don't know why Mr. Anderson did, but he also had a smoking habit. That was for sure true. I think he was in there hitting Listerine. And I think kids hated Mr. Anderson because they hated algebra. And I think they sought to destroy his name. If I tell you don't think pink elephant, don't think pink elephant, don't think pink elephant, whatever you do, don't think pink elephant, you're at least thinking pink elephant something. How do you avoid thinking pink elephant? It's real easy. Think blue hippo. (laughs) The Bible tells us to think on things that are true. Character assassination works because character matters to God and because we are so prone to taste the lies and the gossip and the slander. It separates friends. It confuses the naive. It destroys relationships, according to Proverbs. Long ago, generals realized this. It was far more effective to maim an enemy soldier than to kill an enemy soldier. If I maim you, I take you out of the battle and the two guys that have to carry you to the back lines. I've gotten three for one. If I kill you, it's only one. Guess what character assassination does? It maims. It hurts everyone. It hurts the one who's speaking it. It hurts the one who's being spoken about. And it hurts every single person who heard it. This past week on Tuesday, it was Tuesday night or Wednesday night, a pastor in Nashville was interviewed, and he was friends with the pastor who lost his daughter. And when he was interviewed, he made this statement. He said, the pastor was privately counseling the shooter. She was angry at him. So the shooter was searching through the school, and when she couldn't find him, she killed his daughter. That's what this pastor said. This pastor of 25-plus years in Nashville. That's what he said. It hit the news reports. It was reported nationally here in the States. It was blasted as fact over in the U.K. Guess what? By Thursday morning, they have realized this guy didn't have the foggiest clue what he was talking about. The pastor had actually never met the shooter, not one time, did not even know who they were. Certainly had never counseled her. Do you think, though, that that lie will stick with some people? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I don't know why this guy said that. I don't really, frankly, care what his intentions were. I'm just here to tell you what he did was he character assassinated that whole situation. And he should have kept his mouth zipped. There's truth in her lie. There's no gray there. This works as a tactic of the enemy. Get this, because good believers give into it. We're prone to do it. And so how do we move past it? What do we do with it? Well, guess what? You live for an audience of one. Nehemiah isn't consumed with the accusation but he also deals with it because it's made public. Paul defends himself as well in First and Second Corinthians. David doesn't defend himself at other times. I can't get into the weeds with us this morning of when should you defend yourself against an accusation and when shouldn't you? Because it actually takes wisdom, and it's the wisdom of Proverbs where it tells us sometimes you rebuke a fool according to their folly lest they be confirmed in their own ways or convinced in their own mind. Sometimes you look at somebody who's saying something wrong thats accusation and you look at them and say, you're a liar, that's not true true i'm not going to listen to you you want to make somebody mad say that to them and sometimes you should say that and sometimes you should be like this is a fool and i don't want to get in a mudslinging match with them i'm walking away and it takes incredible wisdom to know because the very next verse rebuke not a fool according to folly lest you be like him. And so there's wisdom that has to be brought. I can't get into the weeds there this morning of what you do in every situation. I can tell you this. How do you resist the tactic of the enemy to get you off of mission? Live for an audience of one. You don't live to please them. You're going to have to die to what they think. You're going to have to steal yourself to being controlled by the unnecessary opinions, judgments, and false accusations of other people. You have to become Jesus like, get the behind me, Satan. No, sir. I'm not giving into it. Nehemiah essentially like blows these guys off. I ain't got time to come meet with you. This is very much like Paul and Corinthians when they're judging him in 2 Corinthians. And in chapter 4, he says, I think very little of your judgment. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Hey, I just happen to notice the way that you seem to be doing your life right now, and your career choices and your options. It really feels like you really should be doing this instead. I, you know, your relationships need some work over here, and I really think that what you need to be doing. Nah, 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 nah. Meanwhile, like you, 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 you've drilled down in the Bible and you've prayed and you've considered. Like this is the mission God has me on. Uh, in my mid-20s, I had people be like, you know, you really need to be having a girlfriend at this point. You need to be having a wife. I'm so glad I didn't marry the girl I wanted to marry when I was 24. Because I had never met my wife at 29. <laughs> like, like, but I remember it being like everybody had an opinion about everything all the time. And it'd just be like, what? And can imagine those people if you looked at them and say, I just want you to know, I actually think very little of what you think. <laughs> I mean, Social media would blow up. Like, look at that unteachable, unapproachable person. Listen, listen. That when the enemy's coming after your character, you got to start living for an audience of one. And the one audience that matters is what God thinks about what you're doing. We can only do this when we shed the need for the approval of the enemy. We can only do this when we shed the need to prove the enemy wrong. We can only do this when we're convinced that God has our back. We can only do this when we have a clear conscience. We can only do this when God's approval is the only approval that matters. Live for an audience of one. After Palm Sunday, Jesus spends plenty of time in the temple. It's his desire for God the Father to be glorified. Later on Thursday night in the garden, he's praying to make sure what he's doing, what the Father wanted him to do. And even when his own heart doesn't want to do it, he's saying, but Father, not my will, but your will be done. All along the way, Nehemiah and Jesus make decisions based on the will and desire of God not to answer to, to control, or even deal with their accusers. Whatever scenario you are in, if you resist the tactics of the enemy, you're going to have to commit to living for an audience of one to stay on mission. You know who rewards you? None of these people lined up giving false accusations are ever going to cheer you on at the end of life. There's only one who will reward you. Live for him. Third one. Third tactic, coercion. Coercion. We see it in verses 10 through 14. These first two don't work, so we're going to go to the third. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined in his home, we don't know why the guy's confined in his home. Um, The indication most likely is some kind of health issue. He said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, so such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalot, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. The last tactic here is coercion. It's somehow they've paid off somebody inside the city to lie to Nehemiah. Nehemiah was not a priest. And so remember when I just was explaining to you the courtyard of the Gentiles, courtyard of the women, courtyard of the priest, the place that they're inviting Nehemiah or telling Nehemiah he should go and stay is in the courtyard of the priest. Nehemiah was not a priest. There's also good evidence that he may have actually been a eunuch serving as a cupbearer who also were prevented from going to the temple. In other words, if Nehemiah were going to the temple, according to the law, they were supposed to kill him. So here's the plan. Whether they have an assassination in place or the temple guards do what they're supposed to do, the whole plan is just to kill him. They want to make him afraid. Save yourself. The fear of death is most obvious. This is indeed another plot to kill him. But it's also fear because Nehemiah knows if something happens to him, there's every likelihood the building will stop, the work will cease. And so you can imagine in Nehemiah's heart and mind, well, if I don't go high, do they actually kill me in my own house at night? Then the walls will stop, the the gates will stop, and so maybe I should give in to this. What if Nehemiah gives in to his fears? What if Nehemiah misunderstands his role so that he believes he's necessary for God to accomplish his work? Well, in that place, he could easily give in to his fears and ruin his name. He can give in to this option that would seem to save his skin, but he would lose all respect. He could violate the law. And Nehemiah is basically saying this, it's better for me to die than to break the law out of fear. Now these guys are crafty. And so they use prophets and so they hire prophets. We don't, we don't know anything about this prophetess, Noah, Daya, and the rest of the prophets other than the fact that they were paid off to try to terrify Nehemiah. They twist scripture to try to coerce him to doing what they want. Does coercion happen today? Does Satan use coercion as a tactic for you and I? Yeah. Let me ask you this. What are you afraid of? You ever been afraid of losing a relationship or friendship because you stand for truth? How about the cost of ministry? You ever been afraid of what it will cost you to commit to doing ministry? What about being afraid of what others will think of you for serving God? Anyone here ever been afraid of how their children respond, being angry or resentful over being raised in the life of the church? You ever been afraid of being alone because you're trying to follow Jesus? You ever been afraid of being ostracized at work, relegated to menial tasks, ignored, thought of as crazy, and more? I just want you to know, any moment, any doorway where you and I are prone to be afraid afraid, is an open doorway for the enemy to coerce us. To drill into that fear to convince us to get off of mission. If you have fears and you're open to coercion, just like Nehemiah, just like me. Just like the threats against Jesus that God the Father doesn't love him. This is what Satan tells him while he's in the wilderness. Does God really love you? Would he really put you like this? Why doesn't God feed you? Why doesn't God take care of you? Same lies he tells Eve. Does God really do this? You know what? God's really afraid of you being smart like he's smart. He's afraid of you. God's afraid of, you You, you know what? You, are you afraid? Do you want to live us? listen, Satan goes after our fears. What are you afraid of? I'm afraid of my kids not turning out right. I'm afraid of being lonely. I'm afraid of, of, of being judged. I'm afraid of being a failure. I'm afraid of not succeeding. I'm afraid of getting to, into my life and feeling like I wasted. I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. And this is where coercion comes in. Threats from Saul to the Christians. Threats from King Saul to David. Threats from Pharaoh to Moses and on and on and on. How do we do it? You know, there's all kinds of examples in the Bible of people staying on mission for God and, and that's what God uses to save them. Because Nehemiah stays on mission, it actually saves his life. Because Noah stays on mission, it saves his life. Because Daniel stays on mission, it saves his life. Because Esther stays on mission. Because Paul and Silas are in jail, they stay on mission, it saves their life. Jesus, at one point, walks through a crowd that wants to kill him because it's not yet his time to die, and he's on mission, and it saves his life. And so I would want to stand here and argue to you, stay on mission for God, it saves your life. But here's the problem. There's all kinds of examples in the Bible where it costs them their life. Isaiah who's put in a log and sawn in two. Stephen, who's stoned to death. Peter, who's crucified upside down. Jeremiah, who's killed. And of course, of course, Jesus. What do we make of that? People do lose relationships, things, money, and even their lives. Keep your eyes on mission. Keep your eyes on the right audience. Remember who gives the rewards. Your safety is in God's hands and no one else's. This past week we saw an example of that a wonderful example of that in Nashville. A little over 2 years ago we saw videos of police officers who would rather live in the hallway than die in the doorway. And this past week we saw police officers who'd rather die than let children get shot. It's an unbelievable unbelievable moment of courage. They were not stopped by their own fear. They kept pushing one another to push past their fear. What? To stay on mission. And what was their mission? Stop the shooter. What's your mission? The glory of God. We must push one another, push one another past our fears to stay on mission. We must push one another to, to do singleness in a way that glorifies God and invests our lives for him and his kingdom and pushes against the fears of the judgments of everyone else around us. We must push one another as parents and as grandparents and frankly in this room as great-grandparents to present Jesus to our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. Hold him in front of him and we're going to be afraid and we have to push each other. We have to push each other to move past our fears as we declare Christ to our neighbors, our community, and our workplace. As It costs us friends and we must push each other to stay on mission. How do we do that? Listen to Jesus, just as we close, talk about mission. What is true courage? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Who is Jesus talking about here? Well, obviously he's talking about himself. Greater love has no one than Christ, that he would lay down his life for these, his friends. And Jesus doesn't just die for his friends, he dies for his enemies. He's saying this is love. And so there's no mystery when we look at John 15, 13 through 14. We see Christ saying, look at my love for you, and he loves us, and that should motivate us. But you know what he said in the verse right before, just so you understand? This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Do you know what he just said in that moment? Die for each other. Lay down your life. And if I could extend it based on what we've been learning in Nehemiah this morning. Lay down your life for one another by being on mission for God. You know, courage is not the absence of fear, it's action in spite of fear. I'm afraid. I get afraid. I face fears all the time. I get scared I'm messing it up as a pastor as a husband, as a father, as a neighbor. I get afraid of health issues. I get afraid of school. I, I get a, I get afraid of the cost of following Jesus. I get afraid. Do you get afraid? I get afraid. Guess what? You hear like one big basket of fear. Yay. And I keep telling myself, courage is not the absence of fear. I'll never become so much like Jesus that I'm not afraid. But I also tell myself, I know one who laid down his life for me. And he's given me the same spirit. Whereby I can be ruled by love and not by my fear. I want to call you to be on mission, to stay on mission. I want to call you away from fear to love. When we remember the purpose of God's mission, the rewarder of the mission and the protector of the mission, We will resist the enemy's tactics.